Investors Chronicle. Companies and Market Show, welcome back. Today we've got reactions to Rishi Sunak's spring statement. Uh, we've got coverage of Warren Buffett's latest takeover. And we chat to Mary McDougall about her feature, Can Tech Save Healthcare? All that and more, let's get going. Welcome back to the Companies and Markets show. Uh, it is Thursday afternoon for us, not for you, listener. It'll be Friday or maybe even the weekend. Um, joining me in the studio, Mary McDougall. Hello. Hello. Welcome back. Uh, and then over the line, we've got our regulars, Mark Robinson. Hello, Mark. Hello, John. It's like a time machine, isn't it, really, this programme? <laughs> it is. <laughs> it is. Uh, Julian as well. Hello. Oh, hello there, uh, John. Hello, everyone. Hello. Yeah, we don't actually leave the studio between recordings. <laughs> you enjoying the weather in uh, weather in Devon? Oh, it's very beautiful, as always. Thank you. As always. And Alex Newman. Hi, John. Hi. Hiya. And the weather's okay in Norfolk? Yes, it is very nice as well. Yeah, I think the whole UK is basking in it today. It's, it's been no great. No squalls then. Yeah, so we're all we're all crammed into various studios mm-hmm. around the country. Mm. In, yeah, we're not international, but uh, national. An extreme form of uh, social distancing. <laughs> <laughs> well, quick news roundup before we uh, before we get into it properly. Things first: spring budget. Chancellor Rishi Sunak's spring budget has met with, has been met with widespread criticism for not going far enough, or in fact anywhere, to tackle the cost of living crisis. Uh, headlines were £6 billion national insurance cut for affecting 30 million workers uh, and a one-year 5p cut in fuel duty. A rising energy bill costs would be reassessed in autumn, Sunak said, uh, with annual inflation predicted to rise to nearly 9% in Q4. Uh, Warren Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway has wandered back into M&A market for the first time since 2018 to purchase the insurer Allegheny. Uh, We've got a breakdown of this deal to come uh, a little later. Uh, More sanctions news. The list of UK sanctions uh, to Russian companies and individuals has expanded to include the world's largest diamond miners. That's Al Al Rossa. Some of the companies reports we've uh, we've covered in the magazine this week include Cineworld, Marshalls, Pension B, YouGov, Restaurant Group, Deliveroo, Kingfisher, Oxford Nanopore, uh, and Dignity. They're all they're all online. They're all in the magazine uh, this week. And finally, quick look at, at markets for the week. FTSE 100 pretty flat this week, up around one percent. Uh, Wall Street likewise very steady. Apple doing some heavy lifting for tech stocks. That's up around seven percent. Right. That's enough from me. Uh, I'd like some of your guys' reactions um, to the spring, uh, the spring statement. Mark, maybe we can come to you first. Oh, well, what's what's fairly clear, I think, is that he had uh, little in the way of uh, wiggle room uh, coming into the budget. The public finances have been in their worst shape uh, in peacetime. Uh, to, certainly to be expected given what's gone on in the last couple of years. And now that it's obviously being exacerbated by the security situation in Ukraine, it's not surprising that uh, he, he was, it's, it's a fairly um, modest set of proposals in the budget. Uh, I guess he said by the end of this parliament, there'll be a 1p cut 
in the, the basic rate of taxation, which will be welcomed by everyone, but um, I'm afraid uh, all, the, all this really means is that our spending power is going to keep on reducing uh, through the end of this year and probably beyond. Yeah, I think it's it's even worse than that, isn't it? Like they're talking about uh, the Resolution Foundation is talking about an eleven hundred pound fall in people's in the average working household's budget for next year, which yeah, I'm sure we can all look forward to that. Um, but it's, it's interesting, isn't it, that the Resolution Foundation is now taking the role of the old Institute for Fiscal Studies. That so as soon as the budget comes out, they spend the whole night taking it to bits and then rubbishing it the next day, which is really what, really what the continuing in that fine, fine tradition. Um, but I mean, it is, uh, yeah, we are looking at, at some of the worst uh, squeeze in decades, isn't it? Sometimes since the 1950s, it was as bad as this, the mid 1950s, I think they were talking about it. Um, but I mean, it's just a combination of everything at once, isn't it? Ukraine, you know, we're all paying more now for, for wheat because a third of the wheat comes out of Ukraine and Russia. Um, and then on top of everything else, you had the supply squeeze anyway after the end of the pandemic. So it's you know it's it's the worst possible set of scenarios in which to be the chancellor, isn't it? Really? Yeah, I mean, I mean on that point about uh, Russia, Ukraine as well, they're two of the largest um, two of the largest uh, wheat exporters in the world, but also two of the largest suppliers of uh, uh, fertilizer. Um, and of course, you know, if, if their gas production falls, then it puts further pressure on uh, the production of nitrate uh, fertilizers. So it's hard to see how food prices uh, will come back down to earth for, for a while longer, I would imagine. Um, it's um, obviously spells a lot of trouble for household budgets. Uh, the outlook for uh, investors is, uh, is mixed to say the least. I mean, I, I guess people aren't exactly running for the exit yeah, but I think what it will probably do is accelerate that rotation into uh, into value stocks going forward. I thought, um, I mean, what Chris Dillo highlighted this in his in his take on it um, on the the budget yesterday. But the, I mean, two of the interesting things I thought from you know, which obviously didn't really get the headlines because you know the cost of living is is the uh, is the main focus. But the and the the OBR's reaction. Is, you know, they seem they still seem quite optimistic about the UK economy. So they, I mean, they think real GDP is going to grow three point eight percent this year, um, and that's like a that's a big drop from what they were expecting in the autumn. But it's um, you know it's it's that that's above trend, and they I think one of the things they are expecting. I mean, they they can they can sometimes be a little bit too bullish the OBR when it comes to business confidence, but. If 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 listeners recall back to I think it was last last year there was a, some of the tax breaks that were that were announced to encourage business investment. I mean some of them were enormous. They or they're almost you know they're sort of, one of them I think was one hundred and thirty percent tax rebates. They're almost being paid to make some capital investments. Um, that that is gonna that is gonna really boost business investment by like you know eleven percent or something this year. Um, so. So there is that. And then the other thing is that, you know, although they OBR said that although consumer spending is going to take a bit of a hit this year, um, they they they're also expecting consumer spend well, they're expecting consumer spending to rise by five point four percent after inflation. And that's I know I know last year was, you know, it's a slightly awkward comparison because we're still, you know, coming out of serious lockdowns 
but that's the sixth largest rise since the second world war so it's quite a funny it's quite a funny picture picture i mean i, I you know consumer stocks maybe that's not the worst news you know if you're sort of cutting through the cutting through those pretty gloom deservedly gloomy headlines i i, I don't know it, is. it depends on people's ability to pass on the costs, isn't it? Which is yeah. so far they've been able to do, isn't it? So that's why a lot of share prices in that in kind of consumer durables have held up, isn't it? Because they they can more or less defend their margins um, when inflation rises. But then 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 that that sort of runs out, doesn't it, down the road? Well, there's other um, issues as well. I, I looked at um, uh, next as uh, next results uh, today. And uh, one of the points there, if you look behind the figures, is the level of discounting. The, their profitability has held up uh, well because compared to uh, past years, they haven't um, they haven't been in a position where where they've been able to discount. I mean, their inventory levels were, were historically low levels because of the pandemic, uh, and there was um, obviously outage in terms of their high street stores. But the, but the point, the main point that I took away from it anyway was the fact that, uh, you know, you, you, there, there has been reduced discounting and the more discounting you get, the more that affects the bottom line. Now, going forward with uh, discretionary incomes um, shrinking, uh, that may no longer be the case. So, um, you know, the high street retailers might struggle uh, in terms of profitability, I think. I was just going to say, it does feel like a, a weird, weird world that we're living in where the OBR is forecasting growth of over 3% and at the same time um, forecasting that living standards are going to drop by the most since 1950. We still had rationing in 1950 as well. <laughs> it was always better in the good old days, wasn't it, Mark? Oh, yes. <laughs> you were then. Let's move on to our second item of the day. Um French geriatric Warren Buffet is uh, is back in the M and A space, um, as as I mentioned a little earlier on. Um, Julian, you you wrote very briefly about this earlier in the week. What what do you think the appeal of uh, the insurer Allegheny was to uh, to Buffett? Yeah, thanks, John. It's an interesting uh, deal he's done. It's the first big M and A he's done in six years, which is quite a long time for Berkshire Hathaway to be out of the market. But uh, it, it, they spent twelve billion of their 146 billion cash pile um, buying it. I mean, essentially, the appeal is that it's an insurer. I think there's there's no two ways about it. Buffett uh, owns quite a big chunk of the American insurance market. So he's, he's, <clears throat> Berkshire is about the second largest um, line insurer for motor insurance, um, for example. And um, Allegheny has re um, relatively um, sort of niche positions in that. And they also do reinsurance, which seems to be another thing that he favours. But the, the reason I found it quite interesting was that uh, insurance seems to have been the basis on which Buffett built his business. I think that's, uh, I, I, don't, I don't think there can be any doubt about it. And he, actually, he said himself that um, uh, the first insurer he bought in 1970, it was, uh, was the foundation for Berkshire Hathaway. And I got, I kind of dug into a bit and, and I was trying to work out why that would be. And I mean, insurers are profitable, but you know, they can be, they can go through long years of, uh, of fallow years, particularly if, um, particularly if they've got a lot of claims or there are disasters or something and all that profit can be wiped, uh, uh, can be wiped out quite quickly. 
But what I hadn't realized, and there doesn't seem to be an equivalent in the European market, is that in America, for example, uh, insurers, between the time that you pay and settle a claim, there's a sort of time gap. So sometimes it's up to 60 days. And you pay this, this money gets paid, and the insurer uh, can then invest it on behalf of its own shareholders. So you get this, the reason he likes them so much is that um, they essentially generate free cash that he can use for his investments. So uh, there's a constant stream of, of cash flow that comes into Berkshire Hathaway on the basis that uh, the insurers take time to settle, a, um, to settle claims. And th this cash pile sort of runs through the company's accounts, um, which I, I don't know you, I, I, Alex is probably a bit more knowledgeable on this point, but I don't think you can do that here, can you? I don't think you can, I don't think you can siphon, what siphon, I mean, I don't think you can redirect short-term money through the parent group, can you, from an insurer? I think that's, that's almost, it's almost ring-fenced here, but isn't it, by comparison? Yeah, I, and whether or not you can, I'm not, I'm not 100% sure about that, but I, I know, I, I know that the insurers in the European market um, whether it be a product of of solvency two rules or just long running rules, is they they invest in really boring stuff. They inv they invest in you know fixed income and uh, you know dependable bonds. I mean they may stray stray out into corporate bond territory, but I mean Warren Buffett loves equities. That's his that's his you know that's his kind of modus operandi, and he he you know puts cash where he sees value and um, and yeah, I mean that that is yeah, like you said, that has been the driver of the Berkshire Hathaway Empire. It's it's it is underpinned, you know, and it's it's sort of funded the growth of everything else that's um you know you know from Apple to uh, to craft to to everything in between. So um yeah, I mean it's just it's just an insight he had. 50, 60 years ago, and he's kind of run with it. So, um... <laughs> well, it's actually skimming, is it? I mean, it's, just, it's skimming the business, isn't it, in a, in a funny sort of way. But um, the, the thing I found interesting about the, the other interesting about Allegheny is, is it's not um, it's not just an insurer. It's got these weird ancillary ancillary businesses. So uh, he's along with the the insurance business. It has um, another company called Wilbert that sells funeral and cemetery. Um, uh, accoutrements <laughs> there's a various bits and pieces for cemeteries uh and there's another there's another division that's a children's toy manufacturer called jazzware um and sort of weird now but also precision cutting instrument i mean it's this he hasn't just bought one bit but it comes with all this other stuff so you kind of wonder whether part of the attraction was that he will be able to break up uh this rather funny sort of business and sell off the the other sort of divisions for more money than than they you know it looks to be worth on paper so i, I think that in, in in many ways it's a typical buffett deal it's quite sort of astute on the one hand and a little bit eccentric but uh, ultimately i can't see them losing any money on it i would have thought i think there are some parallels between the two companies as well because Berkshire hathaway prior to him joining prior to him turning it really into a a large general insurer is that it was um Bush Hathaway was a manufacturing company to begin with um specifically they used to make, yeah, they used to make drapery or something yeah textiles the and then it yeah. uh, I, th I think what it was he he know he it came to his attention because he noticed what was happening to its share price uh whenever they'd sell off a mill 
he, he, he almost like Simon Thompson in that regard. You know, he's, he's seen a pattern there and acted upon it. But, you know, over the years, it, it had various arms as well. You wouldn't say it was necessarily a, a conglomerate as such, but uh, it, it was a relatively old company, and so it had sort of a few bolt-ons there which were which have been shed down through the years. And maybe he's, like, as you say, maybe he's uh, thinking he can go down that road again. Well, I mean, it must be entirely, it must be entirely possible. I don't know what everyone else thinks. I've always been a slight Buffett sceptic. I, you know, I often think that he gets the deals he does because he is Warren Buffett rather than effectively. Yeah, of course. I mean, it, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy after a while as well. He, he, get, he gets to enter companies on such advantageous uh, terms uh, that there's limited downside compared to other shareholders in many cases. You know, uh, he earns a lot of preferential stock uh, for instance, and, uh, and 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 very often there's sort of conditions attached to the ownership from Bulger Hathaway's perspective. So you know, there, it, it's the success has been self-perpetuating to a certain degree. It's just um, it's just it's just all smoke and mirrors, isn't it? It's mm. Just a sham. It's been a sham of a career. <laughs> a sham. Well, I know. You, you, Julian did use the term skinning before, which I normally associate with casinos <laughs> and the mafia. <laughs> I don't think it's quite that bad. I mean, you know, obviously he's been, um, he's a sort of a legendary figure, um, but it's not that he hasn't made mistakes in the past. It would be inconceivable if he hadn't, but I, I guess the, la the last one I remember is that uh, he took a bath during the early part of the pandemic by selling off um, all of Berkshire Hathaway's uh, exposure to the airlines and I think he I think I think there was a, a loss of around about five billion dollars I might I might be wrong on that but the strange thing about that is that he'd taken a bath on the airlines you know 20 years before or something and uh, had warned you know had, had warned all the uh, shareholders that uh, you know this is an area that you need to avoid um oddly enough uh, Simon told me uh, Simon Thompson said that to me uh, some time ago so you know, he, he's not perfect, but we'll see how this one uh, pans but they're having, a, they're having a good year, Berkshire. That you know, it's it is their kind of inflation hedged qualities of that conglomerate has really shown its metal in a tough for a tough start to the year. You know, the S and P, I think it's sort of come back a little bit in, in the last couple of weeks, but was certainly in correction territory, and they're having definitely one of their better years in a long while, having underperformed. You know. The, the tech, obviously the tech-led uh, surge of the last decade. So, um, so yeah, I think, I think oh yeah, I mean, to take contrary view, I think maybe it's this sort of moment, moments, having a moment uh, this year again after a few fallow years, but. Well, I guess it's, it's the rotation into value, isn't it? Yeah. That people have sort of noticed. And um, but, yeah, I, I, again, it's, it's, it's just one of those things where if he, you know, if he stuffs his portfolios full of, um, you know, inflation hedge companies, I mean, insurance companies are inflation hedged in many ways, um, and and also for the amount of cash they produce. I mean, the, he's never really going to fail, is he, on that on that basis? Mm. But uh, yeah, so another interesting deal, and um, but we'll see how far what he does with it, really. And, and also, their meeting is coming up, isn't it? I think that's the other point to mention mm. is that their famous sort of shareholder meeting is, I think, it's at the end of the month. Was it end, oh. end of April, I think. Oh, end of April. Okay. Yeah. Just for the record, Elegany's shares up twenty five percent since the uh, since the takeover. Yeah, they they got sold for eight hundred fifty eight a share. I think that was mm. the yeah that was the premium. So, yeah. Uh, 
Um, very good. Very good. Thank you, Julian. Um, right. Finally, Mary um, has joined us this week because she's written a long read um, this week. Uh, Can Tech Save Healthcare is the title. Um, Mary, what, what sparked your interest in this sector? Because it's it's not something you normally cover. It is a little bit off my beat, but I just think it's such an important, interesting area. I wanted to to jump into it. So we all know that healthcare services are really stretched. A tenth of the population were on NHS waiting lists at the end of December. Healthcare workers are overworked and exhausted. Lots of doctors want to leave. But more positively, technological advances are starting to converge and some people are really excited about the prospects for change. So I read a couple of books about this and leaving aside the investment case, which we can talk about later, I think there are three key trends that are driving innovation and it's, and it's how these are coming together that, that's what's exciting. So the first relates to scientists' understanding of molecular biology and genetics. So the human genome was first sequenced in 2003, cost three billion dollars and um took 13 years and now it can be done very quickly for under a thousand dollars and most diseases have a genetic component from cancer to heart disease so being able to understand um and and read out and even edit uh, genetics is um going to make a big difference to diagnostics and early prevention. At the same time, people are becoming much more digitally connected. Just about everyone's wearing these devices from Fitbits to Apple Watches and everything. And as sensor, sensor accuracy and portability is allowing more and more data on individuals to be stored. And then on top of that, you've got AI becoming much more powerful, being able to read out all this data and read meaningful patterns so that there's something that you can do with it. And advances in hardware and stuff is making this much more powerful. So there is hope that as these come together, they can actually really lead to big, meaningful changes in healthcare, but it's notoriously difficult to implement. And um, the difficulty for investors is the companies that are really at the forefront of this can be very prone to hype, often loss-making, and mm. have a high probability <laughs> of failure. So it's it's a really interesting area. There has been a huge sell-off in um, med tech and biotech stocks, which probably needed to happen. But at, at some point, the, the valuations mm. will become attractive, I think, and it's it's definitely an interesting area. Could, could you expand on the, um, on the AI portion of it? I mean, ha- how... How exactly does this um, does AI insert itself into into healthcare? Well, there's in lots of areas. So one area that people are very excited about is drug discovery. So at the moment, it um, it takes seven to twelve years to bring a drug to market um, and costs over a billion dollars, and the success rate is around five percent. And there are claims that AI. Um, can use some combination of pa- paralysed automated processes to, to guide the design process of of new drug candidates. And in fact, taking over and speeding up the job of scientists, you've got companies like Recursion, Tempest Labs and Benevolent AI, which was involved in um, making a treatment for COVID. But so if these can work, that could have huge implications for the biopharma sector but the technical challenges are huge and it's hard to predict how long it might take there are some people that that think it's sort of hype maybe in, in an area where AI is having more impact already is diagnostics um 
So you use AI to read scans. In lots of cases, they say that's more accurate than doctors can be to help doctors. Um, and maybe Renalytics is an example of a UK-listed company that's using um, a machine learning algorithm to check blood markers and compare them against um, medical histories to give you a kidney health risk score. <laughs> that's an applied example. I'm not, I'm not quite sure I'd want to know about my renal health, to be honest. <laughs> I do think this this area is generally really hard to invest in if you're not a medical expert. And there are, there are quite a few funds that specialise on healthcare innovation um, and ETFs, which have had big sell-offs recently. But the managers, and I guess they're talking their own books, so they would say this, but the managers are quite bullish about the fact that the companies they own at least are well capitalised and won't require too much more funding are actually in a strong position. I think biotech generally is now priced lower than it was before um, before the pandemic. So that means the markets are saying there haven't been any valuable scientific improvements in the last two years, which this is what one manager told me, which, which maybe doesn't make sense. Great. Well, thanks, Mary. Um, you can catch your full, uh, your full, what, two and a half thousand words uh, on... Uh, on, on healthcare tech uh, in our magazine and uh, and on our website as as per usual. Uh, now we're not getting kicked out, so um, Alex, I'd like to come to you if uh, if that's okay. Just maybe quickly, we can touch on your um, FTSE 100 versus uh, the UK property um, article. It, it sort of dives into the the question of whether buy to let is uh, is the way to go versus the the FTSE 100 what what did you sort of what did you conclude on this uh, yeah I, I, I probably should admit that I don't fully conclude uh, <laughs> with what the what the way to what way to go is but I mean I suppose I took my starting point um, the fact that property is is seen you know we all we all need a place to live in, but also property. So many people talk about property as an investment, and it often is the largest asset on, you know, individuals' balance sheets. Um, and uh, you know, with that in mind, I just wanted to I just wanted to compare the returns, quote unquote, from from property over the last uh, few years to the FTSE 100, which I suppose for you know UK investors is the most prominent and visible um, equity index. Um, so you know at the same time you know we've, we've had we've had sort of the the much heralded much heralded death of buy to let and that's because you know been a, a, a raft of changes um to the way particularly the, the way that um uh that that um mortgage interest payments um can be uh, deducted or tax can be uh, deducted um uh, and and also stamp duty charges. So it, 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 it you know the returns that investors can expect from rent it, buying and then renting out a property probably diminished. But um, with all those caveats, I mean the the returns from the FTSE 100 on a you know which we should treat as a total return index because it's it's dividend you 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 know it's a big dividend paying uh, index, and it kind of makes sense to to think of reinvesting those with. You know, reinvesting those um, those distributions into the index for the long haul. Um, on various measures, the FTSE 100 comes out ahead, and and on others, uh, UK house prices come out considerably ahead. 
um, particularly if you've um, yeah if you've if you've rented it out and ridden the wave really of of capital you know fairly low volatility capital gains over the last um, decade and so you know the concluding thing I would I would say here is I, I would be surprised if we see the same levels of house price inflation over the over the next um, over the next decade just because in in certain pockets of the market and we've talked about this a lot um, it seems hard to connect prices to um, uh, affordability um, but at the same time you know there's nothing to be sniffed at the, the returns that that you can make from from you know renting out a uh, a property and really i suppose investors have to look at look at property returns as a, as a slightly lower risk bet than equities the fact that they've come out ahead on some measures shows you that the the you know risk adjusted return profile is actually quite has been quite favorable for for property and it's not going to change wildly overnight even though i think they're probably bumps ahead for the property market so um yeah in a nutshell you don't even have to read it now that's the article <laughs> but um uh, that's that's kind of that's kind of the sort of slightly awkward comparison i wanted to make um and just just see if you, you can stack the two uh, against one another um yeah <laughs> yeah sorry yeah. I, sorry i threw you a bit of a bit of a hot potato they're asking you to conclude on something that you've actually just made a very nuanced argument uh, for either way but um thank you thanks. Mind if I grab that hot potato just for a moment <laughs> um I, I read something that was quite interesting uh recently and uh, if we make the assumption that a certain amount of liquidity is going to be withdrawn from the market if the cost of credit goes up if uh, lenders become slightly more reluctant to uh, lend under certain circumstances we, we could see um changes to uh, median house prices then because uh, what i was looking at was was the affordability uh, index um and that looks at um average house prices against median wages across uh, uh, you know uh, several different economies and the, the most expensive one uh by some distance was the was the hong kong market Next in line was Australia, where the uh, median house price was uh, 11 times higher than the average salary, which is extraordinary, really, because, I mean, what, what used to be the standard multiple of three to 3.5 times um, you know, your earnings, that's what you'd normally get a mortgage based on that. The UK is, uh, is uh, significantly below that as well. And in Australia at the moment, we're seeing a sustained fall in average house prices, and that's underway at the present time. And it's been on evidence for a few months now. Now, um, you know, we, we may see something similar in, in, in the UK market, although, as I say, the multiples here are, uh, are certainly more favorable than they are uh, down under. But anyway, it's yeah. worth keeping in mind. I think uh, the two, two alternatives I'd, I'd add to that. One is, I don't know if you've ever, you guys have ever seen in Hong Kong that these, these, these they're absolutely crazy. They're these kind of like bed apartment pods that in, in some in some uh, residential uh, uh, building districts of, of Hong Kong, you essentially you're you're kind of you work in the day, you come home to your bed pod. It's like those easy uh, or those, you know, those Japanese business um, hotels. So we either go that route and Taylor Wimpy branches out into um, into sort of bed pod accommodation or we reconfigure the um the family unit into sort of polyamorous 
uh, <laughs> multiple um, income generating unit, which can which can bring down the you know the those household uh, income levels to something a bit more sustainable. So you know you never know you never know what the property market will do to society. Well, this is true. I mean, in Hong Kong, you can obviously see that the problem there is just one of space. I mean, you can only yeah. go vertical, really, in, in Hong Kong. It's all, it'd be almost like uh, um, being a submariner, really. You sort of share your bed yeah. with, uh, with other sailors, which probably applies to the Royal Navy in general anyway. But uh, Yeah, it's the lash and yeah, <laughs> rum and the lash, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You missed the, uh, the middle one there, right? <laughs> yeah, they're both, both going in the estate agent's brochure, aren't they? <laughs> well, under that tagline, <laughs> rum lash. And... <laughs> John, we've gone off on a tangent here. <laughs> I know this is where I need to, I need to rein you guys back in. Um, I think we will have to end it there, guys. Just uh, as we've, uh, well, we've gone over our studio allocation. Although no one's come in, so I think we're doing okay. Um, but thanks very much for uh, for joining, uh, for calling in once again, guys. Uh, and thank you, Mary, for guesting this week thank you very much listener we'll catch you again next week uh so we'll uh, we'll see you then thank you the company's mark show was edited and produced by me john rogers and don't forget if you're enjoying our work here head over to the itunes store and drop us a racing and review thanks very much and we'll see you next week bye-bye up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. now that's music to my mouth hello fresh let's get this dinner party started discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com